The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We're working every day to apply scientific insights and methods to improve district policies and programs. Learn more at thelab.dc.gov. Hi, I'm David Yoakum, director of The Lab at DC. Today on the podcast, we're exploring the criminal code in the city. To help us do that, we're joined by Richard Schmeckel, the executive director of the Criminal Code Reform Commission, an independent agency of district government. Their job? To bring the district's criminal code into the 21st century. Our story really starts in the 20th century, in 1901. William McKinley is beginning a second term as president, which is cut short when he's shot by an anarchist in September. Cuba becomes an American protectorate. Ed Sullivan, Louis Armstrong, and Walt Disney are all born, and the first household vacuum cleaner is invented. In our backyard, the McMillan plan is being developed to transform the National Mall into public green space and monuments. And Henry Brown Floyd McFarlane was serving as the president of DC's Board of Commissioners. Remember, we didn't have a mayor yet. And in terms of the legal system in the city, common law is the rule of order. Legislative authority and executive branch authority in the 19th century, even in the 20th century, is chaotic. There were just multiple different bodies that Congress had set up to make laws and enforce the laws. All of these groups were generating edicts and rules and regulations, and they were all out there, but they were never systematically gathered together. They were never ordered, and they were never thought through together as a whole. I'm Richard Schmeckel, the executive director of the D.C. Criminal Code Reform Commission. Back in 2016, Mayor Bowser and the council commissioned Richard and his team of four to review the district's criminal code. But before we can dive into what they're up to, we have to return to 1901 to a judge named Walter Smith Cox. He was a well-known local judge, but also at the GW Law School. Fun fact, he was also the judge who presided over the trial of President Garfield's assassin. When it came to the 1901 commission, Judge Cox had a difficult task ahead of him. Take the district's common law and make some sense of it. Or, to put it more technically, write a criminal code. A criminal code is a reference to a collection of criminal statutes defining punishments, penalties, and doing it in an ordered fashion. For the non-lawyers listening, a quick definition of terms. Common law is based in customs and practice. It's what judges develop from case to case. It relies on what's happened before and grants a fair degree of flexibility to be applied in the future cases. Civil law, on the other hand, is based in legislated codes and gives the courts less flexibility from one case to the next. And so what the 1901 code did is it brought together all of these laws as a coherent system rather than particular laws at particular times. And that made the code a dramatic step forward. And it was a time and an era when what he was doing was kind of radical, right? To put all those uh, laws on paper 
together in one place to organize them. And it really framed criminal law, but also other civil laws going forward. One example, the, the murder statutes, uh, homicide statutes on the books that were codified in 1901. You had some like first degree murder, which committing acts with malice aforethought. And you know, what does malice aforethought mean? Ugh, you might roll your eyes now and you might roll your eyes then. And to figure that out, what malice aforethought meant, you'd have to go to judicial opinions and, and figure that out. But they put on the books uh, language that at least gave a, a sign of kind of a placeholder for what was required to be proven for first degree murder. The 1901 code remained though dependent on that history, on the common law of all these judicial opinions to fill in the gaps. It was, a, it was an outline almost for what the law was. So while the 1901 code was a huge step forward for the district, it wasn't without its limitations. They kind of did the, the most important stuff, they made a gesture at, and then they did what was easy. Manslaughter, really hard to define, because actually it goes into you know, whether there was mitigating circumstances that undermined proving malice, which is actually this very complicated conceptual thing in 19th century, 18th century common law. So they did the, in some sense, the easy parts. They put those down. And in places where, you know, something like first degree murder, they had to have something on. For manslaughter, they had to have something. Uh, they put down what they could. But again, it really relied on the common law to fill in the gaps. So the 1901 code creates a new order in the district. And it works well enough. But 1901 was more than 100 years ago. And if you're worried the code may not have stood the test of time, well, you'd be justified. There are three main issues. First, there are still some common law offenses that just aren't captured in the city's criminal code. Right now, there are some pure common law offenses out there, things that aren't mentioned anywhere in the DC code, things like being a common scold, which is a obscure 19th century offense, but you know what? There's a record of it. And it's a common law offense, which means that it is an offense purely, that exists purely by virtue of having been recognized by some court in the past. In this case, 1800s the last time, what is scolding? Well, I couldn't even tell you because, again, um, there, to, to figure that out precisely, you would have to go back and analyze the prior. Before 1830s, when this last conviction happened, you'd have to look at the case law saying, what are the elements, how it's proven, and it's opaque. Basically, as best I can tell from that one decision, it is what it sounds like. A woman was convicted for being verbally abusive in a public place to some others who might have well deserved it, but it was a kind of public disorder offense. Now, how it was used, um, whether it was at root really an antiquated misogynistic offense, and again, it hasn't been charged by in the last 175 years, but it could be. It still looms out there. It still exists and is recognized indirectly by a provision in the DC Code that recognizes the continued existence of the common law. So one of the recommendations in this first report that we did issue was this is a simple fix to change some of that language to get rid of some of these pure common law offenses. Now, it doesn't affect or improve the district's manslaughter statute or simple assault or some of these other offenses that we now have on the books that are used that have only a penalty, don't state the elements, but at least they're referenced right now in the code. At least there's some marker that this crime exists, and then you turn to the law, the judicial opinions, to figure out what it amounts to. But for, again, something like being a common scold, 
you would never know unless you're somebody who loves a little bit of history and is done exploring. And by the way, being a common scold, the biggest problem in the trial, apparently the woman who was brought up on charges of being a common scold was initially convicted and then there was some discussion about the punishment because the only known punishment that had been recognized was an English practice of ducking. And ducking uh, amounts to tying a person to a end of a long pole and putting a fulcrum in the middle and then uh, finding a big body of water. And sure enough, lowering and raising that person tied to the end of the pole into the water under the water, above the water, under the water, above the water, like a duck. Ducking, um, now apparently even to the sensibilities of you know the district in the 1830s was unacceptable. And so there was a lot of hemming and hawing about what are we going to do now that we have, this, we have a conviction here for being a public scold, but ducking penalty is the only thing anybody can come up with. As I recall reading is a bit murky how it was ultimately disposed of but I'm happy to say that there was no ducking. Um, I, I will say the, the, the current code that we have, the 1901 Act, what it did is not only recognize the continued existence of common law, except where specifically kind of abrogated by the 1901 Code, but it also gave a default penalty of five years imprisonment for any offenses that weren't referenced. So something like being a common scold, were it to be prosecuted today, it wouldn't be ducking you have to worry about. It. It'd be at maximum uh, five years imprisonment. The second challenge, some items in the criminal code are just plain outdated. We have a statute dealing with rat harborage, right, that provides a 90-day misdemeanor penalty for failure to remediate your property if it's harboring rats. Grave robbery, which again is not disturbing a grave, it is literally robbing a grave and using it to traffic in bodies, which again, uh, at the turn of the century was a real issue. And, you know, there was good money to be made in digging up bodies and reselling them for uh, dissection purposes. We have those kinds of things out there. We have, we have offenses still on the books, uh, criminalizes playing games in streets, which might very well make sense as a kind of an ordinance that you want to prevent that kind of behavior as being unsafe, but to criminalize it, unconscionable. Title V of the DC Code contains a statute which flatly criminalizes a failure of a Metropolitan Police Department to make an arrest for a violation of a United States law in their presence. It came onto the books in the 1960s, and you think about, you know, civil rights era, what might have been behind that, I, I have not looked into legislative history. Um, it's kind of by chance that I stumbled on it, but it's, it's the kind of thing which is kind of eye-opening when you stop and think about it that we have on the books a statute that as applied to for instance the use of marijuana in the district of columbia which while decriminalized under district statute uh, remains a violation of uh, federal law always has but here we also have a law on the books that says it is illegal for a metropolitan police department to not make an arrest when they see a violation of the federal law in front of them now, who's going to make an arrest in that? Is it going to be one MPD officer arresting another? I don't think so. This is a kind of prime example of offense which perhaps it's forgotten. Perhaps some folks are aware of it. Either way, it's not going to be used. We have a lot of dead wood out there. Challenge number three, a lack of uniformity. 
With over 100 years of new laws being laid on top of old, the district's criminal code hasn't been amended as a cohesive system, and that leaves a fair degree of discretion up to prosecutors and judges. If you have individual judges rendering radically different verdicts and sentences based on the same conduct, that's a problem. This is a basic feature of justice that uh, similarly um, situated people doing similar conduct should be punished similarly. The major uh, option that judges have is to not change charges, but they have tremendous power over sentencing. The trial judge's decision about sentencing is not reviewable for anything related to proportionality. Anything within the bounds of the statute that wasn't a sentence based on an improper, you know, kind of constitutionally protected characteristic, it stands. So tremendous ability for judges on that back end to decide, hey, we have inconsistent penalties for misdemeanor threats, for felony threats. What is reasonable? It's up to that judge. Now, we should say that the district does have sentencing guidelines, but they're voluntary, and so they have no legal effect. That said, they do exist, and they're an attempt to provide a degree of uniformity for the sentences issued from one judge to the next. So the, the voluntary sentencing guidelines try to provide a voluntary model to constrain sentencing behavior. These sentencing guidelines are themselves very broad, and they're fundamentally limited by the shape of the code. The robbery statute in the district, we have one grade. There is one robbery statute, and it includes everything from pickpocketing or grabbing a wallet somebody puts down on the table in front of them and running off to the kind of, of you know, punching somebody and kind of the more stereotypical act of robbery where there's violence and real harm to a person as well as a loss of property. All these things are in the, the robbery statute, and the guidelines don't go any further. They have chosen to follow the categories that the code puts out. And by following those categories, it just limits how specific anybody can exercise control or guidance over what's going to happen. We want to get on the books all the relevant statutes in one place. We want to order them. We want to be clear and precise about what constitutes the offense so that it's in the statute and judges then are put more in a role of troubleshooting the unusual instance where something's unclear and how it applies in particular cases instead of having to be put in a situation where they're deciding what the basic elements are. That's the kind of uh, situation we're in now that um, it's really unacceptable and, and a modern criminal code can solve this. Okay, so to recap the challenges, some common law offenses aren't captured in the city's criminal code. Others are just plain outdated, and when you look at them as a whole, they don't necessarily fit together. Enter Richard and his staff at the Criminal Code Reform Commission. So the Criminal Code Reform Commission is an independent agency in district government. Started operation in October 2016. The agency's mandate is to provide recommendations to the council and the mayor for revision of criminal statutes using certain criteria. The statute sets out that we're to look at improving the organization, the clarity in which offenses are written, the completeness of offenses, and particularly our statute points out the need to state all elements, including culpable mental states, 
which has been a problem in the district's code. There are other aspects of our, our statutory mandate as well, but they're focused on these kinds of good governance types concerns with the code. What we've done is set out a plan in the limited time that we have, try to set out a roadmap for how to modernize the code. We've developed a general part which provides general rules of liability, general definitions, lays out a lot of the infrastructure that is needed for a modern criminal code. We've also been prioritizing revision of property offenses and offenses against persons, things like you know, theft, extortion, robbery, assault. We are continuing work on that right now and will be for the coming months uh, to do offenses like homicide, sex assault, you know, serious crimes, which uh, some are, in, those statutes are well written. Um, others are terrible. Um, there's just no way, no way to, to defend the fact that we have, again, a manslaughter statute that doesn't even state what the elements of the offense are. That's just indefensible from the perspective of a modern criminal code. We're prioritizing those offenses and that general part. How much more we'll do depends on the future and whether the council and mayor um, who have been strong supporters uh, to date, see that the work we're doing is worth continuing, and then we will be able to be kind of more comprehensive in our work, looking at additional offenses. Well, so when you issue your, your final report to the mayor and council, I think you said in September, what types of recommendations do you think or anticipate that it's going to contain? One is new statutory language. We're writing out, here's what we think the new robbery statute should look like. We're also, an even bigger effort, is to put together a commentary accompanying that statutory language, which describes how and why current district law is being changed by the recommendations we're making. And then other changes which are clarificatory in nature. We put that together, and that's the package we are going to provide. It's, it's due to time constraints, frankly, that we aren't able to go the next step which is to prepare a bill that would not only pass into law the new statutory text that we're proposing, but also to make what we call conforming amendments. If you change the robbery statute currently in law, well, you better remember that robbery is also considered a crime of violence, which is defined elsewhere. That crime of violence has ramifications for sentencing. And so you have to think through what comes along with those changes. If we divide robbery into pickpocketing level behavior and uh, levels of conduct that involve more serious harms to a person, well, that kind of gradation of the robbery statute will then change the analysis for whether robbery as a whole is a crime of violence. Some low-level forms of robbery maybe shouldn't be treated that way and then shouldn't be subject to the kinds of enhanced penalties that go with committing a crime of violence. So those types of conforming amendments, they get complex. It's a lot of legwork. And frankly, the reason we exist is because the manpower, the amount of dedicated time and effort required to do this kind of comprehensive revision just isn't in the council's capacity internally. The Judiciary Committee does outstanding work, but it has a staff of three or four. My agency is a staff of five, and we're spending years on this effort. So for it to translate from the kind of 
work that we're doing, recommendations, into a bill, and into dealing with these conforming amendments, let alone to go further and to look at additional offenses that may be more rarely charged. That requires a lot of time and work, and it's beyond what we can do in this two-year window. Given, given how complex this is, how do you even begin to tackle the project? Where do you start? When we start looking at uh, an offense and we kind of map out ahead what we're going to look at, we look at groups of offenses, right? So we try ourselves not to duplicate the, the flaw that we've seen in the past of working piecemeal on offenses. We try to look at, for instance, in the context of robbery, not just robbery, but assault. Historically, the robbery statute has been unclear, but it essentially requires some degree of assaultive conduct. So when we were working on recently putting together our kind of draft recommendations for robbery and assault, we looked at them together. We thought of them as a, as a whole and wanted to make sure that their statutory language uh, reflected the fact that a robbery is essentially an assault plus theft. First, we group things together when we're reviewing them. We review all the case law in the district. We review the legislative history. We look at other jurisdictions to see um, uh, what models are out there for how to set up these offenses. It's very easy to get caught up in the district's system because it is complex. It's rich, but sometimes somebody else elsewhere has built a better mousetrap. And so we want to learn that, and we want to use that information. So we look at other, other jurisdictions. Uh, we look at statistics on the frequency of charges, uh, the penalties. That helps us to start thinking about whether gradations are necessary. But after we put all of these together, we internally run through some degrees of review, and we draft recommendations that then go to an advisory group. Our advisory group is set by statute. It consists of representative from the United States Attorney's Office, the Office of the Attorney General, the Public Defender Service, two appointees by the council who are law professors. We also have representatives on the advisory group from the council's Judiciary Committee and from the Deputy Mayor for Public Safety so that those legislative and executive branch bodies are able to stay in touch as we are going forward in, in making these decisions. All the recommendations our agency puts together and goes through this process of review by the advisory group ultimately needs to be approved by at least a majority of the advisory group before being forwarded on to the council and the mayor. So, I mean, I, I can't help but wonder why now. I mean, it's a you've got a pretty persuasive argument that we're overdue for this reform, but it's taken more than 100 years to get here. What suddenly changed? Reform of this type has been really difficult. There are different reasons in each jurisdiction why attempts have faltered. There was a prior attempt in the district in the late 70s. It's actually kind of an interesting story. Home rule was set to go into effect in 1975. One aspect of the initial uh, conditions was that there was a moratorium, I believe it was for four years until 1979, on the, the D.C. Council making changes to the district's criminal statutes. And it was explicitly because at that point, Congress had formed a commission to develop criminal code reform recommendations using kind of best practices out there. And again, this is late 70s, the, the, the model penal code based reforms have swept through most of the country. The thought was, okay, look, mm, timing not great. Some folks in Congress felt strongly ab about uh, reforming the district's criminal code. We're not going to let that hold up home rule proceeding to take effect 
but we do kind of put this moratorium on council control over criminal statutes to give a chance and see what this commission came up with. It failed. It failed at least in terms of legislatively redesigning the district's criminal code. It came up with a, some recommendations, actually quite different than what we did, and I think we're trying to avoid some of the defects in their approach, but was also a victim of the timing. The, the prospects for any major reform, the cards were stacked against it. it. It was a difficult time with a lot of conflicting views and ultimately a much more punitive view, expansion of drug crime penalties, of weapon penalties, of mandatory minimum sentences, a lot of changes were made that, at the time, that's where the focus was. The effort to revise the criminal code and, and do a, in a much more uh, liberal, progressive approach failed. So let's take a step back for a second. Not everyone's yep. familiar with not only the district's criminal code, but even what a criminal code is at yep. all. So if we take some concrete thing out on the street, let's say I walk <clears> out of the building, you come around the corner, you threaten me, if you hit me, you take my wallet, there's a crime that occurs. How does the criminal code come into play? Who uses it? How do they use it? Well, the criminal code provides the moral authority and legal authority for social action to constrain behavior. It works in the first place by hopefully making people think twice when they're considering engaging in a behavior. Now, often it doesn't, right? There's a lot of study that shows that you know, the deterrence value of laws and even harsh penalties is minimal. It varies by the type of offense, the type of behavior involved. If the law doesn't have an influence before the behavior, the next step is is right. You know, uh, the victim of the crime is going to report it or it's seen. Police intervene, and at that point, when they're considering making an arrest, they are already analyzing the behavior in terms of the criminal law. Now, most police are not lawyers. Um, there are some, but most police are not lawyers. For them, they're working on kind of a, a practical knowledge of the elements of different crimes, what seems right and wrong. And for many, it is fairly intuitive, right? You know, you don't steal, you don't hit somebody, you don't take their things. In the criminal law, we often refer to these types of crimes as a malum in se, you know, Latin saying, which basically just means it's evil in itself or, or bad in itself. It's, it's manifest that that is antisocial, unwanted behavior, and it should be sanctioned. So we have intuitive understandings that police use, and they're trained to on the criminal law, but for more difficult situations, their training is tested. The arrest phase, I would be you know, brought in on a specific charge, and the arrest record would reflect that. But immediately for this kind of situation, it'd be a referral to the United States Attorney's Office. They're the ones who are deciding from this arrest, from the behavior we have on the record, what charges, if any, we're going to proceed with. And they use their discretion. A lot of crimes for which an arrest is made are called no paper. The charges are, are dismissed, person is released, it goes no further in the court system. But the United States Attorney would have a lot of choices to make, right, about charging. Charges could be brought on many of these overlapping offenses or just one. There's no official binding mandate that requires them to follow one type of charge versus another. If the statute allows charging, they can do it. Do they have to pursue a charge that 
the arrest was on, or can they introduce new charges that an officer didn't document? Absolutely. They, they, they have charging authority based on the record in front of them. They can, they can change charges and do and, and should, right? Police officers are not fully versed in the ins and outs of the criminal code and the many options out there. And prosecutors are definitely much more savvy about that. So they evaluate based on their, again, understanding of what's appropriate for a charge. And that's what they proceed with. So what you see charged in court is not necessarily um, the conduct for which the arrest was initially made. There's another step in there where prosecutors exercise their discretion to move forward in the justice system. So really three fundamental layers of discretion at least. That's With right. the officer on the street, do they make an arrest and if so, what charges do they document? Yeah. The prosecutor, what charges do they push forward? And then on the back end, if there is a conviction, yeah. the sentence that the judge imposes. Would one window into the discretion be to look for what you might think of as redundant charges. So in our street counter example, I take it you could have been charged with misdemeanor threat, felony threat, or extortion since I'm a government official. Could a prosecutor charge you for all three? And if the judge on the back end sentences you to the maximum 6, 20, and 10 years for each and then assigns them consecutively, land you in 36 years of jail time? The constraints are, you know, one, common sense, right? And the judgment of the community, if it's a jury trial, in terms of finding liability, they may bridle at that. If there are, you know, outrageous charges, the jury functions in our society as a, as a great check on what is reasonable. Prosecutors uh, themselves, they exercise discretion wisely, and they're a check on making sure things don't get too out of the norm. But in the end, if things go awry, the only thing that we have is if the statutes are written in a way such that one offense includes all the conduct of another, kind of think of Venn diagrams in a circle covering the, the scope of one offense, if it entirely fits in another one, well, in that case, those offenses we would say merge. And at sentencing, the judge would be forced to treat those as one offense. But Again, a lot of the problems we've encountered is that the drafting of particular statutes is imprecise and wasn't thought through in a comprehensive manner. So while felony threats and misdemeanor threats convictions, I think almost surely would merge, it is unclear to me that uh, some of the other possibilities would. And so there's no constraint there. There's no requirement that these be treated as the same offense. Under the eyes of the law, as long as the elements differ, each has a, an element that differs from the other, two offenses are distinct as they're written on the books, and that's what matters. You can then be convicted of both, charged for both, and ultimately sentenced consecutive or concurrent. At the end of the day, what do you think is the, the key problem your team is solving with this project? I mean, we've already touched on some of the key changes already, but what about the broader implications for policing, for the overall justice system even? It's an infrastructure project. This is long-standing infrastructure need that has been pushed off, pushed off. It needs to be addressed. So we're going to do that. This is not about solving problems that people might see in terms of severity of the criminal justice system, how well it's functioning. I want to start a step back, and I want to say we need a rational system. We need a modern system. 
and we should be doing uh, get in line with what a majority of the country does, right? This is not uh, something that requires us to reinvent the wheel. We can follow these models that are out there. We can do it in a manner that's sensitive to the district's kind of unique experience and the law that we have on the books. So we have a, we have a path forward for this. So let's let's fast forward now to September. You and the commission, you deliver the report to the mayor and council. You know, I expect that there's probably going to be a lot of differing opinions about which recommendations to take, what adaptions to make, what to reject. And one of the things you've been talking a lot about is how a key kind of underlying problem here is, is a lack of cohesion often between these different laws. If we start kind of uh, tinkering around with the recommendations, do you think there's a danger that a similar problem of a lack of cohesion might actually emerge during the legislative process? Absolutely. So the, the legislative process here is another phase in this kind of criminal code reform work. We can do the best that we think we can in terms of putting together a comprehensive uh, set of recommendations. What we produce may not have unanimous support from our advisory group. And regardless, I can assure you that those agencies, good advocates that they are, will, upon delivery and further debate at the council level of our recommendations, will still be talking, then still be exercising their opinions about what can and should happen. And so the debate will go on. And and it's absolutely true that what we put together is by no means guaranteed to stay in the same form or cohesive whole. I think you have to expect there will be changes. But there's still another player yet. Residents, community organizations, even you, the listener, who have a chance to add their voices during this legislative process. That additional input should change the plan that we're putting forward. We're putting together the skeleton and the basic outline, and we're filling in a lot of details, but those details and even some important fundamentals of it may shift and may need to shift once there's more public input and the council starts to ask more weighty questions. These differences, they're real, and they should get talked about, but they should get talked about in the context of our system as a whole. And it's not going to be easy, and it's going to make a hash, I'm sure, to some degree of the the carefully laid ideas we have for fitting all the pieces together, because people are going to have some different opinions. That's good. That kind of public debate and engagement, I think, from our perspective, is only good to have people looking again and taking seriously what the law is on the books. Ultimately, what's decided uh, has the ability to set the stage for how criminal justice works in the district for years to come. What we will do may significantly reshape that, or it may not. We can change how a statutes are written, and it will certainly affect a number of kind of edge cases at the, the boundaries, and we can change how the statutes come together and intersect and overlap, how they're structured and graded. And that may affect what penalties result. But it's really unclear to me how this may end up affecting practice. What I am convinced of, though, is that this is a good debate to have. One thing that legislators can control is the criminal law at the front end, defining crimes and punishments, and that's what we would like everybody to examine more deeply and try to rethink, to rework the criminal code for the 21st century. You can learn more about the Criminal Code Reform Commission by visiting their website at ccrc.org.
www.dc.gov. And mark your calendars for fall 2018 when the commission's recommendations will be released. The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. The show is hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Carissa Minnick. Check out our archive of conversations on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to podcasts.